Welcome everybody to this week's episode of Dermatologically Tested, a podcast by the British Association of Dermatologists. Today we have a really great episode in store for you. We're talking to Dr. Tamara Griffiths about a subject that is often hit in the headlines at the moment, non-surgical cosmetic procedures. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce our guest, Dr. Tamara Griffiths, a consultant dermatologist with an interest in cosmetic dermatology and a founding member of the Cosmetic Practice Standards Authority. Uh, welcome, Tamara. Hello. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So Matt, do you want to get us started? Yeah, absolutely. Tamara, you're an expert on these non-surgical cosmetic procedures. Before we sort of really get into the meat of this episode, perhaps you can just explain what these are and we can have a sort of better understanding of what is considered a non-surgical cosmetic procedure and what isn't. Sure, of course. So first of all, to talk about what is a cosmetic procedure, it's a very difficult concept to define. We all kind of think we know what it is, but there is a formal GMC definition which states it's a procedure or treatment with the primary objective of changing an aspect of a patient's physical appearance. So this definition in itself is kind of blurred when we talk about um, the scope of practice of what a dermatologist does, but, but that is the gist of what is felt to be cosmetic. So it's, it's treating something or altering something um, for the purpose of changing the appearance, technically without underlying disease or pathophysiology. But again, in dermatology, we know that's a little bit blurred. So the non-surgical procedures are those that don't require surgery. So they tend to be office-based procedures, not requiring general anesthetic. And we all know them to be what's really commonly available even on the high street now, which is botulinum toxin or Botox injections, dermal filler injections, various laser and light-based devices, so intense pulse light, laser hair removal, and other devices with the purpose of skin tightening, sort of radio frequency, ultrasound, and other types of procedures like that. But but part of the problem with this sector is it is so diverse in terms of what procedures are offered, and there's new ones that keep cropping up all the time. So it is very hard to keep track of. I would say the main ones are botulinum toxin injections, dermal fillers, possibly chemical peels. I'm guessing those are sort of the most popular cosmetic procedures that obviously are found like on the high street, the non, non-surgical ones. It'd be good to understand sort of how they uh, work. Maybe you don't have to go into specific detail on every mm-hmm. single one because I think we'd probably be here for quite some time. But yeah, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about like how Botox and, and everything work. Sure. Well, again, there's a huge range of procedures available, but I'll just focus on the main ones. So so as the face ages, there are changes that occur at multiple anatomic levels. So as dermatologists, we focus on the skin, but the appearance of the aging face is, is more than just about wrinkles and pigmentation in the skin. It's also linked to loss of subcutaneous fat or volume, as well as increased muscle activity or the appearance of increased muscle activity due to loss of fat and skin laxity. So all of these components work together to create the appearance of an older looking face. And to regenerate, to rejuvenate, it's more convincing to alter a lot of little things a small amount rather than one thing a lot because proportion and balance is then disrupted. But with these procedures, particularly on the high street, we're moving on towards changing appearance, not just anti-aging, but actually altering the appearance of a young person. So exaggerated features, um, for example, lips in a a person, a young person who has perfectly normal (laughs) lips. So the spectrum of patient cohort is expanding. It's driven by um, fashion and 
marketing, but the accessibility is increasing without a doubt across the board. And it's really time, it's beyond time we started to try to regulate and put some brakes on this sector, which is really rapidly spiraling out of control. Yeah, I mean, that's something I think we want to touch on today a little bit yeah, um, definitely. On, the, on the safety side of things and why this regulation is needed. But I suppose one thing that it would be good to clear up for people is perhaps sort of focusing on the, on the, the most common. So uh, perhaps your Botox, your fillers, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Who is able to perform these procedures that we're talking about under current regulations? Well, um, botulinum toxin is a prescription drug, so practitioners can't access it unless they are a prescriber themselves, so a doctor, dentist, nurse prescriber. So there is technically regulation on who has access to the drug botulinum toxin, but we know there is poor practice with remote prescribing and abuse of the system, so access can be limited with botulinum toxin. Dermal fillers, on the other hand, are not a prescription device. They're not a prescription drug. So these can be obtained by by anyone, beauticians, and I've had even patients or um, members of the public who order them themselves online and self-inject. So there is a little bit more regulation with botulinum toxin. The risks for botulinum toxin are also maybe maybe less than with dermal fillers. So it's really dermal fillers that we're focusing on primarily because the the risks of chronic granuloma, necrosis, even blindness are very severe in a in a really completely unregulated arena. The fillers in the UK have to have a CE mark, but that is has a very low standard. It's it's really just a mark that, that um, products even a sort of a toothbrush or toaster gets. So so the safety and efficacy data for dermal fillers available in the UK is is really abysmal. Compared to the U.S., for example, where it is an FDA-approved device, so it has to go through a much more stringent regulatory process before it's even available on the market. Just to clarify, so essentially anybody's able to inject fillers. Yeah. And once you have Botox, if you manage to get hold of Botox, anybody can inject Botox. Is that true? That's pretty much how it stands. So the weak link with Botox would be the prescriber who's then doling it out or selling it at a profit too. So that, so that's um, against GMC regulation. <laughs> but practice has happened and yeah. doctors, there's some rogue doctors who have been, been called to account um, for doing that. The practice is very widespread and the resource for uh, tracking this down is very limited. The cosmetic sector, the non-surgical cosmetic sector was deregulated. So the, it, it really was a knock-on effect. When it was deregulated, the procedures were trivialized. Um, everyone and their brothers started practicing. Patients really didn't understand it wasn't okay because it was available. And it became a downward spiral. So so there's always a low-grade level of sort of nefarious practice. But if the standard is set high, the amount of that kind of practice is somewhat limited. But if there's no standard, then, then that that cohort or that poor practice becomes rife and ubiquitous, which is what has happened. So we're in a very challenging position to try to claw some of that back and get some kind of decent regulation, really for patient protection and protection of the public. It, it's not seen to protect you know, dermatologists. I certainly don't have a problem with anybody engaging in this practice if they're qualified and properly trained, but that is not the case. And it's really a matter of patient safety and protection of the public. That's that's how we view it. Yeah. And, and this training, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, going through medical school, having a medical degree. And in fact, you can have done that and not necessarily be qualified or the right person necessarily 
to perform these procedures. It's about doing the relevant training, specific training in these areas, and also going through the right training providers, I believe, because there can be issues with some of the training providers. Yes, it's a very complex sector, but Health Education England did publish training guidelines for non-surgical procedures, and I was involved in that process. So they are very good standards. That is, those gui- that guidance is available online. Health Education England guidance on non-surgical cosmetic procedures, the training that was published in 2015, after the Keo review, which was published in 2013 really shining a light on poor surgical practice with the PIP breast implant scandal, but also uncovering the um, the huge problem with non-surgical procedures, which actually involved over 75% of the market share. So, so the Health Education England training frameworks are available, and we're trying to encourage educationalists to implement them more stringently. Um, but again, as there is poor practice, clinical practice, there's also poor educational practice with rip-off weekend courses, um, again, w- which seem to be very financially driven. So it's an effort to try to clean up the whole arena, uh, which is very complex and with limited resource behind it. But we are making headway and we have made improvements with the CPSA standards, which are agreed standards led by the plastic surgeons and the dermatologists, but apply to all practitioners. And these standards are implemented and checked by the JCCP, that's the Joint Council of Cosmetic Practitioners. So anybody who joins the JCCP register will be held to the CPSA standards. The problem is the JCCP register is voluntary. So people who are really poor practitioners or really have no idea won't join the JCCP register. So given that there are sort of a lot of uh, cowboys out there, as you sort of just touched on, what advice would you give someone who may be considering getting a non-surgical cosmetic procedure? Like, What do they look for? Well, I would advise any patient or member of the public to ensure that the person they're going to see, the practitioner, follows and is aligned with the Cosmetic Practice Standards Authority guidance, so that's the CPSA standard. The CPSA is a group formed by the plastic surgeons and the dermatologists, Bob's Bapras, BAD, and BCDG, and we have created, with multi-stakeholder input, agreed standards in a number of modalities of non-surgical cosmetic practice in terms of what the training needs to be, Uh, what the room needs to look like, how they should prescribe the product, aftercare advertising, so all kinds of standards on what we felt to be good and ethical practice. And in order to ensure the person you're going to see is aligned to those standards, you can check to see whether that individual is on the JCCP register. So that is the Joint Council of Cosmetic Practitioners Voluntary Register. Sorry for all the alphabet soup. So the JCCP is a voluntary register that a practitioner can sign up to, and they have to submit evidence to ensure that they are aligned with the agreed standard. Uh, The JCCP register is voluntary, but it's really gaining momentum. There's more than 500 members, and I would encourage certainly any dermatologist who is engaging in cosmetic practice to sign up to the JCCP register, it's a voluntary register, but really it's to demonstrate to the world that your practice is aligned to the agreed standards. And in addition, it's an act of solidarity to also communicate you think it's important that standards are met 
And although, you know, if you're a consultant dermatologist, you undoubtedly will practice to very high standards, is an act of solidarity to state that this sector needs to be better regulated and it will encourage others, maybe non-dermatologists, to also sign up to the register, again, to gain momentum, to, to bring some clarity to a sector for the patient population. Absolutely. I think that's really needed because it's just, it is, a, you know, a bit of a minefield to navigate successfully. So in an instance where, you know, obviously the JCCP register is, is still sort of gaining momentum and it's doing really well, but say that somebody is struggling to find a practitioner on the register, what else could they do if they're looking to find a practitioner themselves? What sort of questions should they be asking? What sort of red flags should they be looking for perhaps? How can they do their due diligence to, obviously, I, I suppose you can't ensure safety at all times as an inherent risk with any procedure, but uh, minimise their risk? Sure. Well, I think um, the key is to try to understand who, who the practitioner is. So you can very easily check the GMC register to, to find out if the person is a registered doctor. Just to explain to listeners, the GMC, they are the body that licensed doctors, the General Medical Council. Correct. Okay, great. So the General Medical Council regulates licensed doctors. So you can very easily check online whether the practitioner is a licensed doctor, a registered doctor. You can also check to see if that practitioner is on a specialist register under the GMCs. For example, is a qualified dermatologist or qualified plastic surgeon. You can check that easily or a GP, a registered GP. There are other practitioners who are not doctors those individuals will be less well-regulated, but certainly nurses and, and dentists as well will be on the nursing or dental register. So you can check the core qualifications of the individual practicing um, very easily. Now, how much specialist experience they have in cosmetics? Again, it's not that easy to define. So you can ask questions like, how many of these have you done before? What are my other options? Um, so if the practitioner keeps pushing one procedure uh, where you don't think it's that appropriate, <laughs> you might might be a red flag that they don't know how to do other things. Um, I think if if you have a gut feeling that you feel pressurized, that is definitely a red flag. So any kind of emotional pressure, financial pressure. So you know if you do it today, you get less of you know you get a discount, but if you do it tomorrow, you won't. Any kind of financial or emotional pressure, I think, is definitely a red flag. And uh, I think, you know, word of mouth can be helpful, but isn't always that great. Um, but those would be the first ports of call that I have for individuals. I would much prefer a clinical setting versus a beauty type setting. That's, uh, it's a little bit of a generalization, but it would probably indicate perhaps a, a higher level of professional standard in terms of the professional injecting or performing the procedure. Yeah, of course. There have been some reports about the Zoom boom and an increased demand for the, these procedures during the pandemic. Um, but I've also noticed personally, especially with the rise, I think, of social media, a lot of salons and stuff advertising through Instagram, especially. Do you believe that the Zoom boom, like the increase in uh, cosmetic, non-surgical cosmetic procedures, is that genuine, that boom, or is it is it speculation? Um, I do think there is evidence that inquiries and... Um referrals in the medical sector has increased in both invasive and non-surgical cosmetic procedures during the Zoom boom for lots of different factors. Yeah. But I think before COVID, the, <laughs> the boom was already happening due to social media pressures and advertising. But as medics, as doctors, we have to understand, you know, advertising really is 
relatively frowned upon. Um, and this is where there is a tension because we practice to a certain ethical code as doctors, but there are a lot of other people performing the procedures that, that aren't doctors, that don't, you know, they're aligned to a different code or they don't have the education to be trained in that way. So it is a bit of a mixed bag. I think as medics, we have to be very clear. So if we're practicing in this sector, we have to be very clear where our personal, professional, and ethical boundaries are. And just because lots of other people are doing lots of different things doesn't mean it's appropriate. It doesn't mean it's right. And um, I think particularly young doctors, those in training, can be persuaded and led astray by what's happening in general. And I think as dermatologists, and particularly if we're consultants, we really need to try to reinforce that in our juniors that, yeah, lots of people do it, but this is what we do. <laughs> and that, that's not okay. Um, because we're the ones that see the train wrecks, the problems, people crying with, you know, disastrous outcomes. Um, I've had a case where the patient found someone on Instagram, was a nurse, the person came to their house, came, she had a terrible complication, then she disappeared off Instagram. And, and we checked and she actually wasn't a nurse. So there's a lot of fraudulent practice, a lot of a lot of really bad things happening out there. We, we're not used to that in medicine, uh, <laughs> that level of um, sort of uh, unsavory activity, I think. But it's definitely happening out there. And because we're the ones that have to deal with the consequences, usually, you know, on the NHS, um, I feel it's our responsibility to play our role in trying to clean up the sector and not prevent people from practicing if they're trained, but to promote the standards and help um, determine what those standards should be, because we are the ones who have actually the professional knowledge to to do so most effectively. So we've talked quite a lot about how to mitigate risk and how to find somebody that can hopefully do your procedure with minimal risks. But what are the actual risks that we're talking about? What are the what can go wrong, and what should people do if something does go wrong? Well, we know from the the legal side of things, the cosmetic non-surgical cosmetics procedures that cause the most problems are dermal fillers, and then the laser and light-based treatments, so the device-related treatments. So the, those are the two areas where poor outcomes seem to be more common, or at least more commonly reported, probably because they're longer-lived. A poor outcome with botulinum toxin goes away in a few months, but problems with dermal fillers or laser and light-based treatments can be chronic and long-standing. With dermal fillers, it's an injection. It is an injection of a foreign body into the skin uh, or under the skin. We have very common trivial, often trivial reactions, redness, pain, bleeding, bruising. But the dangerous complications would be vascular occlusion, which is mean the filler product blocks the blood vessel. The blood vessel is feeding the skin. So when that vessel is blocked, the skin is starved of nutrition then will die, which means it ulcerates and then can heal with a scar. So, so that is a very uh, unpleasant and potentially permanent untoward event. The worst case scenario is if the blood vessel that gets blocked is the blood vessel that feeds the eye. That's called the retinal artery. And that can occur, even though you're injecting in the skin, it can occur due to what we call retrograde flow. So although the product is injected in the skin, it can actually move backwards in the vascular system through the arteries into the back of the eye. And that causes instantaneous and permanent blindness. Wow. Um, and that has been documented cases in London. Um, you know, and it's, it is a disaster because it's instantaneous and permanent blindness. 
there are ways that a practitioner can reduce the risk of that happening, but but all patients who have dermal fillers should be aware that that is a potential risk. It's extremely rare, but it has been recorded to happen. So, so these are not trivial procedures. They're not beauty procedures. Although they're used for cosmetic indications, the adverse events and the risk profile is potentially significant and life-ruining, you know, with perm- you know, permanent disability. So, so they shouldn't be taken lightly. The risk is very low, but it's there. And then with laser and light-based treatments and device-based treatments, this often burns, scarring, pigmentation, you know, brown or white discoloration, um, which can be disfiguring and, again, chronic. So particularly depending on the background skin type and and what the um, light-based device is, it can cause serious problems. And it's also because hair removal, laser hair removal is so common and ubiquitous, you know, you know, happening all over. Millions of people have it done that, of course, any risk will be amplified proportionately because the number of patients or members of the public undergoing, undergoing the treatment. A lot of the treatments we're talking about, you know, Botox, fillers and so on, they're sort of injectable, uh, injecting into your face. And, you know, presumably that's not the most straightforward thing that anybody could just pick up a needle and get it right first time. I mean, yeah, presumably that there's risks associated with going too deep or shallow you know it's clearly a a highly skilled procedure so so anybody picking up a needle with a filler and injecting into the face you know you definitely have to understand the underlying anatomy particularly the vasculature as i've indicated you have to be aware that could be um, allergic reactions formed so delayed onset allergic reaction or granuloma which can occur um, weeks to months after the procedure um, you have to know how to dissolve the product in case there is an emergency, such as the vascular occlusion or the blockage of the blood vessel that I described. And then there's also risk for infection because the product is sitting in the skin and it's a foreign body. So so there is a risk of, of infection or low-grade infection called biofilm. And a person who injects has to understand all the potential risks and also, in my view, be able to treat the problems if they occur and really, um, in order to do that, you do need to to have medical training or at least highly skilled nursing training, in my view. So those are some of the other problems that can occur with filler injection. And, and also the aging face is very complex. Not every patient is the same. The real skill in cosmetic practice is patient assessment, as with any clinical practice. Understanding the patient's clinical signs, what their face looks like, what are the changes that have occurred, and what little tweaks can you give to to have a big impact? You know, it's not just doing the same procedure on every single patient because everyone's baseline is different. So the real art to effective cosmetic rejuvenation, in my view, is patient assessment and knowing what the patient needs, the least treatment that will have the biggest and most convincing impact. Absolutely. Yeah, so if something did go wrong, um, if someone went and got a non-surgical cosmetic procedure and they did notice um, sort of reaction or or something not quite right, what would you suggest that their next steps uh, would be? I think, yeah, I think the next reasonable step would be go back to the person that did it to see if they can offer you any advice. Bearing in mind that individual may not be medically qualified, they might really not understand what the problem is. If you get the feeling that they don't, then um, I would seek medical attention. So see your GP, get referred to your uh, dermatologist. Um, Because I have also seen patients who have gone back to the original practitioner and and tried to correct the problem, then it's made it worse. So, But my message to patients who have a problem is they're laden with emotional 
you know, a lot of emotional baggage. So they say, oh, it's, it's my own fault. It's simply vanity. There's a lot of shame and guilt involved if something bad happens. And I would like to try to diffuse that, you know, the patient or the, the client or the person who, who went to the practitioner went in good faith to try to improve their appearance. And there was untoward outcome, something something bad happened that, that wasn't supposed to happen. It did happen. But hiding it, feeling ashamed and feeling guilty doesn't help anybody. It's really sensible to try to get the correct help that you need to, to try to improve the situation and get accurate advice. I would say if you go back to someone and they, they say, well, if I do this, but it'll cost you this to have it done, you know, d- don't let them play on your emotional vulnerability that you feel desperate and ashamed and you're willing, you know, you'd really to to maybe take further risks to get rid of the problem. I think try to step back from the emotional uh, upset and, and look at it rationally and get the appropriate help that you need from someone who you can trust. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a good point that you make. Those sort of complicated emotions that people tend to have if something goes wrong with a cosmetic procedure. I think that it's something that I've noticed for quite a long time that I think you see it in the newspapers. Even, you know, journalists can be quite harsh on you know, for celebrities, if, if a cosmetic procedure goes wrong, and, and sometimes it does, you know, there's there's definitely been cases where there have been some really quite cruel stories written about people. But I also think amongst the general public, there's a perception that people have brought these issues on themselves by their own vanity, which I think is deeply unfair. The flip side to this, I think it is sad when people perhaps are chasing perfection and um, unrealistic standards. But I also think that, you know, if a procedure is going to improve somebody's quality of life and make them feel better about themselves, then I think that's a perfectly reasonable reason to look into it and and have a procedure done. Mm -hmm. And nobody deserves to have, you know, somebody take advantage of them and or um, through their own carelessness or um, underqualification cause permanent disfigurement or damage, you know, even temporary um, issues. It's a shame some of the, the judgment you see around it um you know mm. i i think it, you'd never see that if um if it were to happen to somebody getting treatment for a medical issue yeah definitely yeah well i think you hit on a you hit on a good point as well matt that people who have the complication are emotionally vulnerable but actually the patients that come in for treatment are also somewhat emotionally vulnerable mm. they're seeking something because they're not happy about the way they look and unfortunately, because of that vulnerability, they can be taken advantage of very easily. So as dermatologists, we need to assess the clinical situation and try to give fair, compassionate advice. With any medical procedure, as with cosmetic procedure, there's a risk-benefit ratio. If the problem doesn't bother the patient, it's not worth taking any risk. But if the problem bothers the patient quite a lot, it might be worth taking a small risk. And most of these procedures are you know, in correct hands, low-risk procedures if used appropriately by properly trained people. So so that's something that needs to be discussed openly with the patient. The risk-benefit ratio, how much does the problem bother you versus what are the potential risks? You know, and then the other thing we can pick up as clinicians is people who, who have body dysmorphic syndrome. So they're really ruminating about intrusive thoughts. The problem that they perceive is taken over their whole life. And, and actually doing the procedure in that case is not the right thing to do. It's to try to get them, get psychological support so they can have a more balanced view going forward, whether they want the procedure or not. So so it is a very complex patient population, <laughs> even before the procedure, before they're 
might be any untoward consequences. And as clinicians, experienced clinicians, you know, we are well-placed to pick up on these nuances. Um, and that's why having non-clinicians engage in this sort of practice can lead to, to very serious problems, um, life-ruining situations. This is why we're calling for increased regulation. I mean, you do see cases of people who have one procedure and then sort of have more and more. Um, are they addictive or is it a case of an underlying sort of maybe body dysmorphia, maybe something else that sort of psychological aspect that, that sort of sees some people have increasing numbers? Or is it just a case of somebody has a good result and they think, well, why not have more? That wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be and, and it worked well. Well, I think we definitely see the extreme cohort of person who seems to be addicted, particularly to invasive procedures where they're actually completely changing their physical appearance, you know, um, and, and those individuals probably do have some underlying psychological issues. But on the other hand, it can be very difficult to tease those out. Of course. And because procedures are so accessible... You know, they, they may always find someone who's willing to give it a go in terms of surgeon or practitioner. So the the sector also needs to be regulated from the practitioner side. So practitioners who maybe aren't as good at um, knowing where the boundaries are or are people-pleasing. So as clinicians, we always try to make our patients happy. So it is a, it's, it's not a clear-cut area, um, but we do have good guidance, particularly for doctors and you know, I would again reiterate for any junior dermatologist who is thinking about engaging in this practice, or any senior dermatologist for that matter, particularly in the cosmetic sector, we have to have very clear boundaries, our own personal and professional boundaries, what we are and aren't willing to do, and, and try to stick to that. And, and also it's a constant reflection on your own practice. If things have changed or if you're not sure, talk to other colleagues who can give you a balanced view. Um, and I think that introspection, that reflection is really important, particularly for those of us who engage in cosmetic practice. So we practice within what are acceptable boundaries, our personal and professional boundaries. So, but like what regulation would you like to see personally? Well, certainly uh, amongst the professional groups, so the plastic surgery groups and the dermatology groups, we would like to see mandatory regulation, mandatory regulation for those engaging in non-surgical practice. This was actually a recommendation of the Keogh Review back in 2013. And I think it's clear the government at this point in time is, is not looking for mandatory regulation of this sort of practice. Uh, the route that we seem to be going down is the, the voluntary regulation, where we have the voluntary register, the JCCP register, which holds their practitioners' account to the CPSA standards. We will also have indirect leverage through indemnifiers, so that's insurance companies. So the medical insurers and people who indemnify those who practice will increasingly be looking to see whether that practitioner is on the JCCP register or another voluntary register. And if they're not, what we hope to see is then the insurer will not be willing to provide cover for the individual. So there's a lot of indirect levers that we're trying to utilize. Um, the other thing that can really make an impact is publicizing the JCCP register. So if members of the public know there is a register, they can check if their practitioner is on it. If that person isn't on it, the individual can still choose to see the non-registered practitioner, but then they have to be aware of the risks. So it's really trying to clarify and make more transparent the marketplace for the members of the public. So hopefully they would seek out someone who's on the register because that's a kite mark of... Um, compliance with the industry standards. 
Um, so that, that seems to be the route we're going down. And we've got over 500 on the JCCP register now. So as that body grows, those who aren't on the register will become more and more outliers. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think the, the register is a great idea in that it, it sounds challenging to navigate the industry without somebody to help you do some of the legwork. So I do think it's a no brainer. If you can find somebody near you on the register, then, then fantastic. And just getting the word out there and like letting those who are looking to get sort of procedures know about the register, because I think, yeah, that is education is like so important in this industry, without a doubt. Absolutely. And um, what would you say to dermatologists and other healthcare professionals in the industry? Again, I would encourage you to join the JCCP register for dermatologists who are have an NTN training number or are already on the GMC specialist register so they have their CCT. They can be fast-tracked onto the JCCP register with a small additional course through the British Cosmetic Dermatology Group to supplement their core knowledge skills in dermatology. And then you can easily get on the JCCP register and be recognized as someone who is aligned to the CPSA standards again and cast your vote to (laughs) vote with your feet that you feel regulation is required and in the absence of mandatory regulation, voluntary regulation is the next best thing. But it's only effective if enough people buy into the concept. Absolutely. Well, I think you've done a really fantastic job at clarifying what is quite a complicated sector. It's very broad as well. Yeah. And I think that a lot of these procedures have become slightly trivialised. So Mm. I think that's part of the trap that people fall into. And they think, oh, this is just such a trivial procedure. It it can be done by anybody. Let's just get it done. And also people just don't really know exactly, even if they did want to check, exactly what they should be checking. So I think it's great to clarify that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thank you so much, Tamara, for coming on today. It's been really great chatting with you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for your time. Well, that was really interesting. I think Tamara does a really great job, actually, of advocating for better regulation in the cosmetic industry. I do think that because so many of these procedures are trivialised, people tend to underestimate the, the consequences if something were to go wrong. But hopefully Tamara's advice on red flags and, and how to find an appropriate practitioner will be helpful to people listening i certainly found it really interesting i would say that uh this week is our penultimate episode i really hope that you've been enjoying the uh the season so far and i hope that you're able to join us for our last episode in two weeks time all about ai and dermatology (laughs) 